What are you passionate about? I would love to pause right here and give you time to discuss among yourselves. If you're catching this on YouTube, feel free to tap the pause button and talk to the people around you. Uh, in any case, it's a great question to ask uh, if you're willing to engage. It's a great question uh, to hear from someone because you get a window below the surface. You get a, a peek at uh, what more is there. Any relationship uh, generally starts in just the things of facts, like what's your name, what do you do, oh, the weather outside is nice, moves to like opinions, you know, who, who do you like, what do you like about this, to eventually, potentially for some feelings. And if you ask this question, what are you passionate about? It can quickly move the, the relationship along to deeper and deeper. Passion, in this regard, is defined as the, the strong or barely controllable emotion. It's the sort of thing that when passion rises, you know it's important to them. Like, uh, what hits their heart. Now, some of you, anyone passionate about college basketball? Yeah, yeah, there's kind of something going on right now about all that, yeah. Uh, uh, anybody, uh, you know, maybe you're passionate about your grandkids' latest success. Maybe you're passionate about how long you should breastfeed before you move to the bottle. I mean, I don't know. Everybody's got their own thing. Anybody passionate about uh, University of Michigan? State? No, no. Uh, Ohio? No. I know where I'm at. <laughs> uh, when passion leads to welcoming suffering. It's passion on a, on a whole nother level. Like, I'm willing to stay up late and study so that I can keep my grades up and get that scholarship. I'm willing to run even in the rain on a cruddy day because this is what helps me get to the goal of the, the 5K or 10K or whatever that I want to do. I'll sacrifice in order to get to my success. But the greatest passion is when I welcome suffering, not for the sake of my own benefit, but for the sake of someone else's benefit. I'm willing to work two jobs so that my kid that's in college doesn't have to work a full-time job and go to school at the same time. I'm willing to forgo my vacation this year so that I can help the single parent who's lost their job make their next two house payments because otherwise they're gonna be homeless. I'm willing to undergo a major surgery, give up a kidney so that another can live. These are examples that bring together not only the, the first meaning of passion, that uh, strong, barely controllable emotion, but the second one, and it overlays it, and that's suffering. Passion is both suffering and a strong or barely controllable emotion. And when those two definitions overlap in the same action, you know that something life-changing or incredibly significant is happening. We're starting a, a series here that's just going to last the course of the week. So this service, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and into Easter, and it's called Passion. Uh, this week uh, sometimes is called Holy Week. Other times it's also called Passion Week for those very reasons that I just described of the definition of passion. For if we look into it, we'll find as we track with the emotions of the people in the story, the emotions of Jesus and the crowds and all that are around that, that the events are not only significant, but also life and eternity changing. And I want to encourage those of you that have heard this story before, who, for whom the, the reading read just a bit ago is like, yep, heard that, know that one, all set, to uh, engage in this way. And I think the story might come to life a bit more. 
And that's to engage and to explore and get enveloped in the emotions of those who lived the events firsthand. To have in the back of your head, man, what are they thinking? What are they feeling here? How do they hear that? In order to go to the next level in your relationship with God, you have to move beyond the facts of what he's done to how he felt about things, how he feels about people, what his opinions are. Now, the Jesus that we read about is one that they interacted with in the flesh. He was present and at work among them. But friends, let me tell you, through God's word and through his sacrament, through his church, he is just as present and at work among us now. God's word is not just a word about what God has done in the past. It gives us a window about how God is present and at work among us now. He's actively pursuing a relationship with you beyond the facts to opinions and feelings if you'd be willing to have him. So I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles now. If you've got one with you, open that. If you've got a digital version, that's awesome. Otherwise, in your pew, there's one nearby. We're in Matthew chapter 21. So everybody open up there. We're going to be working our way through all of that. I'm not putting it on the screen for those of you that are waiting for me to do that. It's not happening today. You've got to open your Bible. Uh, And as we often do, uh, starting in Luke 21, but I'm going to back up just a little bit so that we're reading it in context. Uh, Back to Matthew 20, uh, verse 29. I won't read all the details of it, but just give you a bit of an overview. Jesus and his disciples are on their way, set out from Jericho, and there is a crowd that's building around them. Two blind men come up to this group that's gathered, and they shout, have mercy on us, son of David. They're talking to Jesus. And some in the crowd try to shush him and stop it, Uh, and they just yell all the louder at this, and they ramp it up, and you know, why do they want that? I don't don't know. Uh, Maybe they want Jesus to themselves or on on their own terms, but in any case, it doesn't stop Jesus. In fact, he pauses right where he's at and turns to the blind men. It's verse 34, Jesus had compassion on them, and he touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight, and they followed him. And with this as the the background, we step into Matthew 21. And again, listening for the emotions of the people in here, let this story come to life or have new life for you today. As they approached the Mount, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, and what would you think as he said this to you? Go to the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. How does Jesus say that? Is it just a matter of fact? Hey, just go do this. Uh, Is it strong determination? Hey, I need you to go take care of this right now. Go. Uh, Is it excitement? Is there even reticence potentially in this? Like, whew, I know when I get on this donkey, uh, what's coming next after this? I know what suffering is ahead. What about the disciples? Being that we're disciples who are listening to Jesus and are given information and sent on our way, I imagine these disciples felt like they did not have enough information. Like, how, how am I supposed to go ahead with just that? Do, which donkey? How do I know which one? How's this going to be ready? What do I think? I got 10 zillion questions about this, but yet, go. And they went. 
And later, with amazement, it happened just as they said. It fulfills the prophecy, verses uh, 4 and 5, about a king coming to you. And the disciples, verse 6, went and did as Jesus instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. And then we see the crowd's emotions on display here, a very large crowd spreading their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the tree and spread them on the road, verse 9. The crowds went ahead of them, and those that followed, so they're all surrounding him, and they're crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are doing for him what they would have done for a victorious king. In the Old Testament, and among the people of Israel, it would have been normal for a king to ride in on a, on a humble beast of burden like this, a, a donkey. And they would have normally spread cloaks and cut branches and carpeted the road to honor the one that is coming in. And so such a display for them, I imagine, is like a huge, deep breath for those that have been tracking along the way. Those who have joined the crowd, some of them have seen Jesus raise Lazarus and heard of that. Some of them have watched the healing of the, the blind men just now, they see he's doing stuff, and now he's stepping into center stage in the limelight and saying, here I am, the king, which is beautiful, because there's other times earlier to this that Jesus has said, oh yeah, that miracle that you saw, don't say anything yet, or the ways he teaches are kind of cryptic and and doesn't really kind of lay it all out there, it's very uh, mysterious in in what he's saying, But, but now there's no masking to the message, but instead just, here I am, the king coming to you. He's finally acting like a king. He's commandeering property, because after all, the donkey is his anyway. He's the creator of all these things. He's directing people where to go, like a king would. He's being coronated confidently, finally riding in as a king. Though I wonder what was in his mind. Steps as he gets closer to Jerusalem. Excited about what's to come? Nervous? Certainly the crowds are excited as we see them going into the city. Matthew uh, 21, starting at verse 10. When he entered the city, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Now, is that stirred positively? Stirred negatively? Nervous about this? I, I don't know. But they said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And this next part, I really, this is where I'm going to land for today. Um, Jesus entered the temple area. They drove out all who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And it's written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer and you are making it a den of robbers. What emotions are going on there? Now, I could easily just read that and and then next he said this, the next he said that, and we just tell the story of how we've always done it at church. But seriously, what's going on? I think Jesus is making a very assertive protest. I think there is determination in him. Like, don't get in my way. You are messing things up. We are standing here in the court of the Gentiles, the area where, where only they can be. And you are showing them uh, a side of uh, being a follower of Jesus that just isn't consistent. I am not okay with this. And what what about the the onlookers of all of this? Imagine they feel blindsided. What does this guy want? And it's all as if for Jesus, it's all in one big thread because the text just continues on. He flips these things over and then verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. 
And actually, go a verse further, but when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And so the people's response, man, I suspect the same sort of hooting and hollering joy that the two uh, blind men had had on the road who were able to see and then followed him. I even wonder, were those men there uh, watching this happen as somebody else that was blind and now became seeing, and they're like, yeah, that happened to me today too. It was awesome. Isn't this cool and this best day ever? And yet not the best day ever for the chief priests. They were indignant, which I had to look up to be able to figure out what that meant. Uh, It means uh, feeling or showing anger or annoyance at what is perceived as unfair treatment. So things don't look right and they're annoyed. They're angry, they feel ugh about this, this whole long-awaited king thing, I don't want any of that. You're messing with our system. And indeed, he was. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked. Yes, Jesus replied, have you never read? On the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Is Jesus smug here, like, hey, you guys should have known this already? Or is he sad? You guys should have known this already. You who have been in the temple have probably heard this more than anyone else, who watched the blind be able to see, who've been witness to all these things, studied all these things. It's happened right in front of you, and yet you remain blind. The weak and the lame are healed. The blind are made to see. But you who are weak in faith and blind to all things spiritual and about me continue to be blind and weak. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Quite a roller coaster of emotions. Maybe a great discussion over lunch today. Like, which of those people, what would they be feeling? What do you think about that? Because it goes from the elation of the blind men and then to the excitement of the crowds, the frustration of Jesus in the temple, to the indignant confusion of the chief priests, to the mic drop, like, hey, you should have known this. It's interesting to me that as we get to this part in the life of Jesus, really during this whole week uh, that we're going to be looking at in the week ahead, the amount of details that are recorded in God's word are considerably greater, whereas an event would be covered in just a few sentences before we're getting line by line, punch by punch, detail by detail here. It's like the the whole pace of the narrative slows down and allows us to pause, to be present in this. Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew to record all these details of this passion? And if there are more details, what are we to make of it? As I'd said before, we call the day today Palm Sunday, and the events of Jesus riding in are significant, the palms and all of that, because he's confidently creating his public coronation as the rightful king. But what I think is most significant is what he does as a king in the temple. For there is where we see the passion of Jesus at its peak on this day. So we'd be wise to take notice. These words of Jesus, verse 13, my house will be called a house of prayer and you are making it a den of robbers. 
And Jesus, uh, after flipping over the tables and driving all the the people out and saying, get out of here, I don't want you in the court doing this. This shouldn't be what it looks like. Uh, He's actually quoting from multiple Old Testament passages, and I won't get into all the details and ins and outs of that. I'll just boil it down to, to what his point is. It's essentially three things. Number one, the religious leaders are robbing the people financially. In, in the money that they're making off of this along the way and changing of the monies to the temple coin. They would have been making money there because there was a currency just for in the temple. They were also uh, making a terrible demonstration of what being a follower of Jesus looked like because this is the court of the Gentiles and they could only come in that far to that court if you were a Gentile and this is the picture of what uh, being a follower of God is. People changing money, buying stuff, doing all these things. He's like, no, no, no. They should see a house of prayer, of trusting in God, of laying their burdens before him. And so number three, uh, is robbing them spiritually, stealing from them an opportunity to know God genuinely instead of the religiosity of all the details of all that stuff. Now, just so we're clear, Jesus isn't saying that you shouldn't obey those customs and give an offering as was directed. There's even actually a provision in the Old Testament that if you're traveling a long ways to the temple, you can buy your sacrifice when you get there. So there's expectation that this would be possible. He isn't critiquing the sacrificing or, or even the, the money changing particularly, but rather the system as a whole. The net effect of burdening the people and not freeing them of people being, ended up being taught and trained to be religious instead of living in light of the gospel. For Jesus, I believe it is one continuous action to reject their religiosity and give them the gospel, to protest what is broken and to heal the lame and the blind. This is the good news, the new way of Jesus, which was supposed to be the way all the time. He's saying, let's get back to this. And so it follows perfectly that as that good news comes out there, as the blind and the lame are are able to walk and to see, that the children would praise him that he is the one passionate about proclaiming the good news and bringing healing and granting freedom from the burden of religion. He was one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is what he's passionate about. Passionate enough to welcome suffering for the good of others. Passionate, welcoming the potential retaliation of all those that would come against him. And the certain retaliation of the chief priests. He'd said, actually, if you go back to Matthew 20, 18 and 19, he's going to tell you what's coming. When we're going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death. And they will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. More on that on Thursday and Friday. This is what he used his kingdom authority for, to be the good news, to free them from the religion that they were getting instead of the gospel. I think it'd be helpful if I explain what I mean of religion as compared to gospel. Uh, I'm going to pull from a book that we use in new member class, and they actually quote uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll and a few from that. Uh, Religion says, if you obey, if I obey, God will love me. The gospel says, because God loves me, I obey. Religion has uncertainty in our standing before God. The gospel has certainty 
based on Jesus' work. Religion ends in pride and despair. The gospel ends in humble joy. Jesus is passionate about the gospel, about not only proclaiming it, but being it. He welcomes suffering. This is how you're supposed to use God's authority. So in light of all this, I invite you to come to Jesus who is offering these things. This is what the church is supposed to be about, the good news. Let it lead you to praise. More so, let it lead you to be passionate about what he's passionate about. Embrace God's invitation in Psalm 37 to delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will put his desires in your heart. He'll transform you to be passionate, to be willing to suffer for others as he did. Now that can look a lot of ways, but but one that I think it applies to to many of us is to, to set aside our old compartmentalized way of life. A life of doing church stuff at church and home stuff at home and work stuff at work and never the, the ones overlapping. But if we let Jesus' passion become our passion, so that proclaiming and being good news bleeds into our work and our home and our personal life, then we suffer by giving up the comforts of only spending time in established, safe relationships in all those places. And instead are intentional about new relationships, especially with those who don't yet know Jesus. And we're also intentional in relationships to encourage other believers to, in the same way. That we'd be willing to take on as we embrace the passion of Jesus so that we're passionate about those things. We'd be willing to embrace the suffering that comes with letting go of the security of our finances to bring freedom and good news to another. We become increasingly willing to suffer the challenges of of welcoming neighbors and coworkers into our homes so that we have an opportunity for that level of relationship to grow beyond facts, to opinions, maybe to feelings, maybe to what they're passionate about. And they might even then ask you what you're passionate about. And you don't need to start with Jesus. Tell him about your hobbies. Tell him about your work. Tell him about the the team that you're after in the final four. But also tell him about the one who's passionate about you. Both the strongly, barely uncontrollable emotion and the suffering kind of way. Because you're invested in that relationship, they'll see you as a real person not just one of those religious people. And it'll be okay that they don't see Jesus the same way that you do, just like you don't see Ohio the same way they do. But we do have a tendency to warm up to the passions of those we spend time with, to become like the people we spend our time with. I don't know what you're passionate about, But if God's set your heart toward embracing what he's passionate about, spend time with him. And increasingly, that will grow because that just is how things work. You become like the people you spend time with. Do that both on your own, as well as every Sunday with Christians and whatever other opportunities you have before you, and his passions will rub off. You delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then spend time with those people intentionally. 
And who knows what might rub off on those neighbors and friends that do know you but don't know him. Here's some more good news for you along the way. The results, not in your hands. He's passionate about holding them in his. And capable hands they are, still marked by the suffering that brings us peace and helps us see. I, I don't know what you're passionate about. But can you imagine the kind of hooting and hollering you do or they'd do if through you God leads just one person who is blind to his promises to finally see? He's passionate about making that happen. And here's some more good news for you. He's been doing it through people like you for centuries. It is his plan. And he's passionate about that. In Jesus' name, amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all human understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.